you know that there are many different kinds of people in this world, many personalities, people with different giftings, and so on and so forth. And yet, this parable that Jesus tells us in Luke 16 today reminds us, as I've titled this sermon, that ultimately, spiritually, there are only two men. Say only two kinds of people. And our points for this sermon under that title are this, two men with their two lives, two men with their two eternities, and two men with their two convictions. There are only two men, two men with their two lives, two men with their two eternities, two men with their two convictions. And the question for us very simply today is, which one are we? Which one are we? If you look back through the chapters before this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you see that Jesus is telling this parable in the context of likely three groups of people. There's His faithful disciples, but at times struggling disciples. There's the repentant publicans and sinners that are eating with Him. And then there's these proud, complaining, really sneering scribes and Pharisees who are in conflict with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as He tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, is directing it to the other groups as well, to the disciples, to the publicans and sinners, but He's really directing it especially towards these scribes and Pharisees. Luke tells us that they were covetous and they were deriding Jesus for His teaching. But Jesus says to them, in effect, you might sneer at me, you, you might mock me, but God sees your heart. God sees you. You cannot serve God and money. That's how He prefaces this parable. And then He begins in our first point with these words, verse 19. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. So, here we're immediately introduced, aren't we, to the first character in the parable, a certain rich man. Now, those people who were listening to Jesus would have noticed something about this right away, and that is that Jesus doesn't put this certain rich man on the same level of importance as the beggar who he will later on give a name to. He doesn't even name this rich man. He just says it's a certain rich man. And yet, as Jesus tells the parable, it's very clear that to people around this certain rich man, he was likely quite well known. In fact, probably fairly important. He lived a wealthy, even an exorbitant lifestyle. 
Jesus says he was clothed in purple and in fine linen, which is, is really another way of saying he was wearing the clothes of royalty, wearing the clothes of kings. Today, you might say it's the equivalent of, of wearing the most expensive brand name clothes or, or other items of, of apparel, or, or wearing suits or dresses that say to everyone around us, look at me. And it's interesting because in, in the original, it really says he was continually clothed in purple and fine linen. He was continually clothed. There's this present tense sense to that description of Jesus. In other words, he's wearing these clothes. This is the, the pattern of his life. This is the, the pattern of what he normally wears. He's, he's wearing these fancy clothes without moderation. And then Jesus says also that he, he fared sumptuously every day, really a way of saying he had uh, parties every day. Now, what would these parties have looked like? Well, likely these are lively, luxurious get-togethers that are maximizing on sensual pleasures. That word sumptuously there, you, you see that? We don't use that word anymore. But that word sumptuously is, is made up of two words in the original, and one of those words is, is lampros, which really means to, to shine brilliantly like a lamp. So you can think of these parties as these, these luxurious affairs that were so uh, full of luxury and pleasures that they, sh- they, they shine out like a lamp from the house. Not hard to miss. Maybe you can think of modern-day equivalents in our culture today. And of course, in Jesus' day, the people listening to Him, the scribes and the Pharisees and the publicans and sinners and the disciples, they all knew what He was talking about. They all knew what He was talking about. In fact, it's likely that the, scri- the scribes and Pharisees who are, we don't know if they're sitting or standing, but they're, they're in this, this position of confrontation against the Lord who's who's eating with, with these publicans and sinners, likely looked over to the publicans and sinners at that point in time when Jesus told this part of the parable and thought, well, who else could Jesus be referring to when he's talking about these parties than these wealthy tax collectors and these immoral sinners with all their flashy parties? Now, of course, if the Pharisees were thinking this, they would have been correct in some degree, because Jesus was condemning. He was condemning the lifestyle that these publicans and sinners had been living. There's no doubt if you look at the, the, the publicans and sinners in Jesus' day, if they hadn't repented, they were living lives that were covetous and immoral and that without repentance would truly lead into the pit of hell. And so in a sense, the Pharisees and scribes were right in turning their attention to these publicans and sinners, if that's what they did. And yet, this heart attitude of condemnation that the scribes and Pharisees had towards the publicans and sinners was problematic in a very major way. Because the publicans, rather the scribes and the Pharisees kept on missing in all of the interactions they had with Jesus, that Jesus was actually pointing at them. He was actually critiquing them. Maybe you've seen this before. 
you're, you're in a group and you hear someone talking about a certain behavior or a certain action and they're saying how terrible that behavior and that action is. And then you see someone standing there and they're nodding along and you say, yeah, but they're the ones doing that. Why are they nodding along? That's kind of what's happening here with the scribes and the Pharisees and the publicans and sinners. Of course, outwardly, the the scribes and the Pharisees would have stayed far away from this kind of partying lifestyle. No one could come and knock on the, on the Pharisee's door and say, listen, I, I saw you at that party last night. I know what you're doing. Because they, for the most part anyways, from what we know, stayed away from those kind of parties. But Jesus was able to look past the outward and look to their hearts. He knew that there was a, a greediness and an immor- immorality, even an adulterous, adulterousness in their hearts and in their lives that was, was cultured. They, they did it in a way that was accepted by the church. And then on top of that, they had these scribes and Pharisees had a spiritual flashiness. They had, if you, if you will, spiritual partying scenes where they showed off their righteousness and they indulged in moral superiority over others. That's why Jesus introduces the parable in verse 15 with these words, you are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knows your heart. But God knows your heart. Now, of course, this parable wasn't just told for them. Isn't, isn't Jesus also putting a mirror in front of us and saying, let's look at our own lives? What about us? Do, do we look good on the outside and yet if Jesus was able to look to our hearts, he would see this kind of spiritual flashiness? This, this spiritual moral superiority over others? Maybe, maybe outwardly you're an upright individual in the church. And you, you conform to the expectations of the church, of, of your peers, maybe even of your family. But inwardly or subtly, you're really parading your righteousness before the eyes of others. You're, you're doing it for man's praise. That's precisely what our Lord is getting at here. You know, sometimes we teach others, in fact, often we teach others, if we have children, we teach our children to be honest. We want them to be honest. We have a book in our home that some of you might have. It's called, children, maybe you know this, Tell the Truth, Tyler. Tell the Truth, Tyler. And the point of the book is very simple. You need to tell the truth in all circumstances. But what about us? What about us? Do we tell the truth to God? about who we really are? Or do we, do we hide it and, and parade before others a sort of false, fake righteousness? This is what the scribes and Pharisees were doing in the chapters also before our parable. And the, the, the darkness of their behavior is really brought even further to light in, in verse 20 and 21 where Jesus introduces this second character Second character, he says, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, 
and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that the rich man was not given a name purposefully by the Lord. But here, this beggar, this nobody. In fact, for Jesus, Jesus is a rabbi. For Jesus to know the name of this nobody is in a sense shameful because Jesus is associating himself with Lazarus. And yet Jesus doesn't know the name of this wealthy man, but he does know the name of this beggar, this beggar Lazarus. And yet we find out, don't we, that even though Jesus knows his name, that it appears to to everyone else anyways that he's almost forsaken by the outward blessings of God. He can't walk. He can't provide meals for himself. He's so sick, he's full of sores. Now, who is Jesus talking to here? Well, let's think again about the the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees, if you look at history back then, often complained that they were poor and oppressed and that God wasn't helping them. They had the Roman Empire oppressing them, and, and the Pharisees saw themselves as this oppressed people. And so maybe they thought, well, Jesus is talking about us here in a spiritual sense. But Jesus wasn't, was he? He's talking here about the sorrowful, repentant publicans and sinners who were with him at that time. Spiritually, these men had at one point been proud and sinful just like the Pharisees, but God had convicted them for their need for salvation, and he had driven them to find their help in Him. And you think about those, those, those publicans and sinners with the scribes and Pharisees. Think about a publican and sinner who, who repented and was looking for help, but who came to the scribes and Pharisees. What would happen? Well, the scribes and Pharisees didn't wanna, want to have anything to do with the publicans and sinners. Their reputation, their past was far too bad. And so they weren't received by the scribes and Pharisees. They didn't cast so much as a crumb of hope, a crumb of the righteousness of the gospel to these publicans and sinners. And yet when Jesus finally came on the scene, the the repentant publicans and sinners finally said, here's a man who gives us hope. Here's a man who offers us food for our souls, who offers us righteousness in him. And Jesus also wants us here to to really look in the mirror, doesn't he? Are we like these scribes and Pharisees who who are looking down our long noses at others? Are we like them? Well, we're spiritually full. We don't need anything from Jesus. In fact, we're willing to critique Jesus. Or are we like the Lazarus, like the publicans and sinners who, who realized how empty they were? They had nothing. They were like Lazarus, spiritually. They needed everything from Jesus. And Jesus is saying to us, which one are we? Do we have our arms folded, walking around? Well, that person didn't do that very well. Critiquing, calling them out? Or are we looking up to heaven, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? Two kinds of men. And how we answer that question is so important because we see in our second point that these Two men suddenly find themselves in in two drastically different eternities. Jesus' parable tells us 
that between the, the period at the end of verse 21, you see that if you look at your Bibles, the period at the end of verse 21 and the start of verse 22, life for Lazarus and, and life for the, the rich man suddenly came to an end, just like that. And it came to pass that the beggar died. And then a few words later, the rich man also died. What a reminder. You know, you, you look back to your, your last week. I, I look back to mine. You have a thousand things to do, don't you? Busyness, all sorts of responsibilities, good things often. But how often do those things not fill our minds to the point that we don't think about the fact that just like that, our lives can be over. One moment we're, we're full of busyness and the next moment it's gone, just like that. And Jesus is asking a simple question. Are we ready? Are we ready? We, we might look to other people like we're doing great in life, having a good time, we're, we're, we're successful financially, we're successful in our family, and yet, are we ready to face death? You think about this rich man for a minute. From a human level, he actually did look like he was ready, didn't he? Because he, he had everything going for him. He had a good life. He had a fun time. He, he indulged in sin in a fun way. He had good friends. It seems probable, as, as we might put it, that he had a significant savings account because how else could be, he be throwing these parties? We might say he probably has a, a substantial RRSP, maybe stocks, maybe a, a good chunk of land outside the city limits where he could retire one day. Clearly, he had a, a nice, well-built house in a good neighborhood. We can see that from the parable. And then verse 22 makes it clear that even when he did die, he had friends who took care of his body after death, something very significant in that culture. And so we might say, looking from the outside, isn't this guy ready for death? But then you, you look at that picture, and then you look at Lazarus, and you say, this, this guy has nothing. He's got no status. He's got no friends. He doesn't even get a burial. He has no outward blessings from God. And you, you look at his trajectory, right? He's, he's already down in the dust before he's even dead. What's going to happen to him after death? And yet, just like today in southern Alberta, things are not always as they appear. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And we find, don't we, that in the end of the parable, the tables are drastically turned. They're drastically turned. It came to pass, Jesus says, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Do you, do you see the dichotomy? Such a drastic separation. In life, things are like this. But all of a sudden, in death, everything has changed. And so we might, we might build our kingdoms here below. People might know your name. You might even have your name on billboards. You might be somebody. But all it takes is one accident, one disease, one slip, the passing of a decade or two, and suddenly, if you are without Christ, the tables are turned. And you will find yourself, Jesus says, in hell. In hell. 
What's hell? Well, hell is a terrible place, isn't it? It's the pit of everlasting darkness. It's a lake of eternal fire. It's a place where flesh-eating worms don't die. It's a place, you might say, emotionally of despair, a place of hate, a place of gnawing, never-ending bitterness, a place filled with agonizing cries of people who recognize that there is no more hope. You know, it always amazes me that some people are willing to joke about hell. I used to work construction, and some of you work construction here as well, and maybe you've experienced what I've experienced, that some people can joke about hell almost nonstop. I can't even count the number of times I've heard jokes about hell on the construction site. Sometimes even some Christians joke about hell, or, or they use it lightly in their language as, as a swear word. You talk to some people about it, and, and if they aren't Christians, they laugh about it, and they say, well, at least I'll be in hell with my friends. That's so sad. That's so sad. Because the joke ends the moment life ends. There's no joking about hell and hell. There's not one person who's been in hell who's joking about hell. And there's also no friends in hell. Did you know that? There's no friends in hell. Because there the common grace of God is entirely removed. Here, even the worst of people can have friends at good times because of God's common grace. But in hell, the common grace of God is entirely removed, and it's only the wrath of God leaving people over to themselves, meaning they're full of hatred. So let us not joke about hell. Jesus says, in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. That word torment there is the word for torture. It's the severest kind of pain. It's interesting, you talk to some people, and if they're sick or if they're in an emergency room, and you say, what's your level of pain from 1 to 10? I don't know if you've asked that question. I have. And they'll say, well, it's a 6 or it's a 7 or 8. We need to realize that the level of pain in hell is an entirely different spectrum. Here, here below, we have all sorts of ways to relieve pain. And we have God's common grace on top of that. But in hell, there is no pain relievers. There's no medications we can take to make it go away. It's torture. It's the severest kind of pain. And we see as the rich man finds himself in this place that it becomes even worse because it says that he lifted up his eyes. And what does he see? But that miserable beggar, what was his name again? Oh, yes, Lazarus. He sees Lazarus. And Lazarus is not at his gates, groveling in the dust. Lazarus is not in hell there with him. But Lazarus is in the very heart of heaven. Jesus calls it Abraham's bosom. He's teaching the rich man, the scribes and the Pharisees here, that the very opposite of what the scribes and Pharisees thought this Lazarus was actually the true son of Abraham. The, the, the publicans and the sinners were the true sons of Abraham as opposed to the rich man. And he's showing him that just like a child is secure and content in the lap of his father, so Lazarus is finally secure and content with Christ in heaven. 
And what a comfort this should be for us. Jesus is really focusing on the scribes and Pharisees, but what a comfort this should be for us today. We, we might look at our lives, and we might feel like a Lazarus in our lives. Maybe we've had many health issues. Maybe things just have not worked out in life like we had hoped they would work out. Maybe all the hopes and dreams of our youth seem twisted. Maybe you look at, at your own soul and you see sin and temptation in your heart and, and it overwhelms you at times. Maybe you see relational problems in your life and they, they break you. And, and you say, I'm just like this Lazarus. Yeah, outwardly maybe people don't know, but I'm just like this Lazarus. I have all these problems. But if you're in Christ, if you've run from yourself, run from your sins, and taken refuge in Jesus, just like Lazarus evidently did, then all is well. When that, when that short period of time, between the period and the beginning of the next sentence, if you will, when that short time of life is over, you will be in Abraham's bosom, the heart of heaven, with Jesus Christ. What a comfort. Our catechism says it so beautifully. It says that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. You know, we can't always change our life circumstances. Some of you here know that. You've tried. Sometimes suffering is just a part of our lives. But this is our great comfort. This was Lazarus's comfort. That when this short life was over, he went to be with Jesus. Is that your comfort? Is that what puts a smile on your face, even in sufferings? That one day soon, you will be with Jesus. We find in our third point this morning that something unique happens in verse 24. We've been speaking about these two men, the rich man and Lazarus. But in verse 24, we discover something very interesting. We discover that, if you will, all along, there was actually a third man in the parable, a third man. Why do I say that? Will you see that with me? The rich man lifts up his eyes, and he doesn't just see Lazarus. He sees instead Father Abraham. Really a picture representing his covenant God as revealed in Jesus Christ himself. That's who he sees. Yes, Lazarus, but, but now all of a sudden he sees God. And Jesus is making a very clear point here in this parable to the scribes and Pharisees. Because the scribes and Pharisees, all of Jesus' ministry, are murmuring about these publicans and sinners who have come and found their salvation in Jesus. They, they, they act as if their main contention is with these publicans and sinners and so with Jesus. But Jesus says, all along, your main contention has been with God. That's who your main issue is with. It's God. 
your covenant God. That's who you're arguing with when you're critiquing these publicans and sinners who have come and found their salvation in me. And it seems the rich man grasps this because now he doesn't speak to Lazarus, but he speaks to God. What, what does he say? You've you got to picture this because he's, he's yelling across a chasm, right? He's, he's yelling all the way from hell, children, to heaven. So, so he's, he's yelling these words, Father Abraham, you can see that yell, right? Going across the chasm. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now you hear that and you think, well, that's interesting. He's asking for mercy. He, he's repenting in hell, isn't he? But then look, look how he continues. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. What does he say? And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice what he doesn't say. Not have mercy on me, for I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. Not have mercy on me for how wrongly I treated Lazarus all my lifetime. Not have mercy on me because I'm, I'm even worse than the publicans and sinners but have mercy on me and send Lazarus, who I still look at as if he's a servant, a nobody. Send him from that place of comfort into this place of horrible pain to serve me. I wouldn't give him a cup of cold water in my life, but now I want you, Lord, to send him to give me a cup of cold water here in hell. You see, he says, have mercy and yet the very nature of his request reveals his heart. He wasn't truly repentant. And this is such a reminder, congregation, that when the spiritual time glasses of our lives, the hourglasses of our lives run out, our, our destiny, our spiritual state, our character will be unbreakably set. Not only will it be impossible to cross over from hell to heaven, but, but actually no one in hell will be willing to truly repent and believe and go to heaven. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, hell will be locked not only on the outside, but on the inside. No one will be willing to come over to heaven in the way of repentance and faith that God requires. And this, this, this scene is so painful because we see, don't we, how God responds to the rich man. Listen to how he responds. He says, he begins with just a one word. He says, son. Do you see that? Well, that's quite a word to say to someone in hell. Son. You who were the, the son of the covenant promises, just like Esau, just like Ishmael. You who enjoyed the blessing of the word of God, the prayers of God's people, Sabbath after Sabbath in the temple. This is a Jew, remember? Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And, and Jesus is really looking at the scribes and Pharisees here. He's saying, son, covenant children, you who've received so many blessings. Today, maybe we might say, you who've received so many covenant blessings in Sunday school, children, 
in catechism classes, in, in, in two services a week every Sunday, in family worship, in being taught Bible memory. Son, you've received so much. Son, you've turned it away. You would not repent and believe. And now the end has come, and you are tormented. You are tormented. A, a, a child of the covenant, tormented in hell. What a sober reminder, congregation. Children, for you too. Don't put away the covenant blessings of your youth. Don't let them go. Don't ignore the blessings God has given you. He's given you so much, so much, and it will lead to hell being hotter and hotter and hotter if you reject them here below. Son. And then how does he say? How does he continue? The rich man. The rich man continues like this in verse 27. Remember, he's, he's shouting across the chasm. He says, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him Lazarus to my father's house. In other words, if you're not going to send him into hell, send him back to earth where it was almost a hell for him. Send him back to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But how does God respond to him? Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But then the rich man shouts again back, Nay, Father, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. But how does God respond? This is so important. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. The one rose from the dead. What a word from God. What a word from God. Do we, do we understand this? Do we see here the heart of the issue for this rich man? The, the heart of the issue really for the Pharisees, really the heart of the issue for, for anyone born in the covenant today who, who isn't repenting and believing the gospel. The heart of the issue is this, that the rich man was convinced, even as he suffered there in hell, that it was in fact God's fault that he, together with his father's house, had not and did not repent. It was God's fault. Why do I say that? Because this man is clearly convinced that God had not given them enough. In the plain word of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to repent and believe the gospel. He wanted something more. If only God would send them someone from the dead. An experience they just couldn't deny. Then they would have repented and believed the gospel. But how does God respond? How does he respond to this rich man? How does he respond to the scribes? How does he respond to us? He says, if you hear not Moses and the prophets, if you don't hear the Bible, if you won't hear the plain word of God, neither will you be persuaded the one rose from the dead. So here's the question. Here's the question. If, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you haven't repented from your sins, you're living in unbelief, Here's the question. What is it? 
that you are telling God that you need to have from Him in order to repent and believe the gospel. Analyze your hearts. Go somewhere quiet and think about it. What are you saying to God, I need from you in order to repent and believe the gospel? The rich man in hell said, I need someone uh, raised from the dead right in front of me in order to believe the gospel. But what are you saying to God? What are you saying you need from him in order to repent and believe in Jesus? Ha have this conversation with God. Don't wait. Did you know that there's hundreds of thousands, likely millions, perhaps more, of covenant children who waited to have that conversation and now they're having that conversation with God in hell? They made all sorts of excuses to God. I don't have this. I don't have that. And so I can't repent and believe. But now they're having the conversation in hell. And what does God say to them? You had Moses and the prophets. You had the gospel of Jesus Christ. That my son became sin for you. And you wouldn't repent and believe in him. Wasn't that enough? Have the conversation today. Don't wait. Don't wait. You see, when you have an argument with God, God always wins. You can't win the argument. His word is enough. Repent and believe the gospel. And I want to close with one last thing this morning, and that is this, that when Jesus said these words, he, he told this parable, this hard-hitting parable to the scribes and Pharisees. He, he didn't say it in a harsh way. He said it certainly with some sort of fear in his own heart, some sort of tremor in his own voice. Why do I say that? Because think about where Jesus was in his life. In only a short while, months, maybe a year, he would go to the cross. And on the cross, he would drink in hell itself. He would experience hell itself. He wasn't talking about hell as some abstract thing. He knew what was coming for him. And he was saying to the rich man, to the scribes and Pharisees, to us, don't go and taste that yourself. I'm going to be experiencing that soon. Repent. Believe the gospel before it's too late. The congregation isn't the same for us. Jesus has experienced hell for us so that we don't have to experience it if we will repent and believe the gospel. You see, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Scriptures. That's remarkable. Why? Not only because He was abundantly compassionate. He is. But also because He knew, as I've been saying, that there are really only two kinds of men, two kinds of people, with two kinds of lives, heading to two final eternities because of two convictions concerning who God is and concerning who they are. The question for you is, which one are you? Where will your eternity be? Amen. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we confess to Thee that so often we do not take these things as we ought. But Lord, life is so short. It's like a grass that grows and then withers in the heat of the noonday sun. And Lord, each one of us in a few short years will no longer be here. We will be in eternity somewhere. And Lord, I pray that we might not be in hell, that we might not be crying out with a rich man, Father, have mercy on me. But Lord, that we might be with Lazarus in the heart of heaven, with Jesus Christ. But Lord, we need thy spirit. Please, Lord, strive with us today through the preaching of the word. Strive with us today through our own consciences that we might not make excuses, but that we might repent and believe the gospel. We ask, Lord, that thou wouldst give us a good afternoon. Please keep us from sin, and please bring us back together also this afternoon to hear from thy word again. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We will sing now, congregation, in response to the service this far from Psalter 431. Psalter 431, uh, all verses.
257, verse 4 and 5. 257, 4 and 5. Receive now the benediction of the Lord and go in peace. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.